following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 21st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I'm not sure that there is a greater collection of verses, a greater place in the Bible in, in one spot that better captures my hope, my prayer, my desire for us as a church, for your life, for my life, than what God gives to us in the first part of the book of Philippians. The hope that I have for us as a church, the hope that I have for us in this city, the hope that I have for wherever God would send us for his glory is captured in a way here in this letter like no other place in the Bible for me. These verses very much shape what I hope for, what I pray for regarding my own life, the life of my family and the life of us together as a church. These verses capture what I am willing for the next 20 years of my life to strive with you for and why it is we're doing what we're doing. I mean, look back at Philippians chapter one. Let's just look a bit at where we've come to see where Paul takes us even this morning. If you remember in chapter one, verse 20 and 21, Paul said, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We live in the joy of Jesus being worth more to us than anything this world could ever offer and worth more to us than anything that death could take away. We live with the overriding purpose and why for our life that he be highly exalted in us and through us. And, and Paul continued on, you might remember in verse 25, he said, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, progress in the faith, progress in your delight and enjoyment in Jesus, your maturation, becoming more and more like Christ. It's that process of enjoying Jesus more and Paul has committed himself to it. He's committed himself to it for God's glory, his own joy and for the joy of those in which he loves, whom God has poured his grace out upon. And this is why he does what he does. And as we saw last week, it's the very thing he calls us to commit ourselves to. Only what matters most, verse 27 says, is that you and I let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That we commit ourselves for our 20, for our 30 years, for whatever days on earth God gives us together as his people, that we commit ourselves to this thing, to live in such a way that we demonstrate that Jesus is worth it. Standing firm, Paul said, in one spirit, with one mind. Single-minded in that together, firmly standing, not willing for one of us to give an inch of joy in him, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by our opponents. 
a unified, steadfast, courageous, single-mindedness of joy in Jesus. This is what Paul's giving his time, his life, his 10, 20, 30 years, whatever God would have given him to this purpose. Friends, this is worth giving our next 20 or 30 years together for. But he's not done. These verses that start really up there around verse 20, verse 19 really, flow into and through chapter 2. We break them apart for the purposes of teaching and trying to understand things. The Bible, the writers, the translators, when they put those chapters and verses in there, they broke it apart to better order and systematize what's there. But Paul's thought, what he's trying to say, what he's trying to encourage, what he's trying to empower, what he's trying to inspire, it all flows together now into chapter 2. So look at what he has to say. If there is any encouragement in Christ, I love that word, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's not asking because he's not sure. That's a way of saying because there is, because there is. And Paul is pointing God's people back to the treasure trove of riches that are ours in Jesus. A unique encouragement and comfort and affection, a sympathy, a participation in the very spirit of God. These are ours in Christ by grace. These aren't things that we have to create. Paul was reminding us by virtue of our position being found in Christ by the grace of God. These things are ours. We don't have to figure out how to manufacture them. Because there are such things, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's, he's back to what he just said a second ago, a few verses earlier. Back to the single-mindedness, together knowing who we are and what we're about. Again, he's not talking, like we said last week, about a uniformity that's supposed to be found around here. Like we're all supposed to look alike and dress alike and vote alike and educate alike and, and like the same things across the board. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a single-mindedness amongst God's people regarding what's most important. When we wake up today, when we wake up tomorrow, when we wake up the next day, if God would give it to us, we're single-minded about why we're here and what we are to be about. There's an overriding ambition and filter that is shaping our priorities and our values and our decisions together. And that's to live in such a way that we demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus is worth it. Paul is saying this is what the 20 and 30 years that God has given us together here is for. Now listen to where he goes. This is all part of the same train of thought. Do nothing, Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit. Now remember, he's writing to the church here. Paul is writing to a group of people just like you and I. Sinners who are still progressing. Still progressing in our joy in the faith. Sinners who are still progressing in our ongoing maturation in the image and likeness of Christ. Still together fighting for joy in the faith. Friends, what Paul is going to help us to see is that nothing can break a church. Nothing can sink a church faster and more completely than pride. 
If it's our single-mindedness of joy together that he helped us see last week that creates this internal cohesion and unity that can withstand the very pressures from the outside, there's something else that threatens the health and the stability and the well-being and the witness of the church, but it's on the inside. There's nothing that can break a church or sink a church faster or more completely than pride. And pride shows itself here, Paul says, in selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, it's a great translation of a word, a word that was very popular in classical writing. Aristotle would use this word often to talk about people who would hustle up a political ladder. People who would maneuver and manipulate and work the angles people who would try to accumulate for themselves power, who were always grasping at things. He would talk about this word regarding people who he would say were unprincipled. You, had, you wanted to have what you wanted. You had to have what you wanted, regardless of what it meant or how it impacted anybody else. Selfish ambition and conceit. You want what you want and you think you deserve it. That's what that means. It's owed to me. I deserve it. The thing is, no one ever admits to being conceited. That's one of those things that very rarely does anyone ever own up to, which is why I like the way, and some of you are going to throw your Bibles at me now, I like the way that the King James Version translates this. They don't translate this conceit. They use an old phrase called vain glory. Selfish ambition and vain glory. Glory, it's all about me. Making me look good, but it's vain. The same word that the writer of Ecclesiastes would use to talk about emptiness, nothingness, illusion. It's all vanity. It's all vain because it's all made up. It's not real. It's image. It's reality. It's about you being made to be seen as something. And Paul says it's this pride working itself out amongst God's people in selfish ambition and vain glory that can do tremendous damage to the witness of the gospel and the well-being even of God's people. So Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And in saying that, he's reminding the church even here to keep a watch on this. Keep a watch on your heart. Keep a watch on your source of joy. Keep a watch together on being single-minded about enjoying Jesus and making him look good. Paul is reminding us of something we learned from the very beginning pages of God's word, the story of his redemptive work all the way through to the end. Our deepest problem, listen to me, our deepest problem The thing that threatens the unity, the well-being of this church right here, not Philippi, right here, Redemption Hill in 2018. It's not the varying different political philosophies we have. It's not the different educational advancements or social ideals or intellectual beliefs. Our deepest problem is always our self-obsession, period. The thing that threatens the well-being of God's people the most is our self-obsession. One writer said, a wasted life is a life that's lived with unchecked rivalry and self-conceit. 
a life that's lived with self-obsession and vainglory. Friends, we live in a day and age that traffics in self-obsession and vainglory. I am owed an opinion. I am owed this. I am owed everything. Unearned confidence. Well, that's another sermon for that time. We live in an age that lives and breathes this stuff. And Paul is reminding the church that we have to strive together. We have to fight together. He says to the church in Corinth, we have to fight together for our joy. If we don't, this is where our heart will take us. What Paul is going to take us towards is not the default mode of the human heart. We'll see it in just a minute. The default mode of the sinful human heart is self-obsession, vain glory, conceit. And this pride can do more damage to a church than anything else. We have to fight together for our continued and deeper joy in Jesus. So Paul says, rather than doing things out of selfish ambition or conceit, keeping an eye towards the way those things work themselves out in our relationships together here inside the church. Paul says we have to have a posture here of humility. And Paul defines humility here for us. So we'll stick to Paul's definition. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. This is how Paul puts flesh on humility. Humility is the opposite of selfish ambition. It is the opposite of vain glory. Humility literally means lowliness. It is the opposite of entitlement. It is the opposite of you owe me this. Humility counts others more significant than yourself. Humility is seen in a life that literally scopes out the needs of others around and considers how to step in, how to serve, how to encourage, how to build up. When Paul talks right there about looking out, that's literally the word for scope like a telescope. You're literally to be playing I spy to some degree in the world around you, looking at where there are needs around you, where you can consider how God has given you the capacity to step in and serve, not counting your own desires in that moment as more significant. That's what he's talking about. It's another way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 22. You and I are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Humility seeks to find joy in making other people joyful in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, here's the thing nothing about those two verses is natural to any of us. We are trained from the moment that we are born and the default mode of our heart to immediately and even unconsciously size up other people to determine how we are more significant in that moment than them. 
And if in that moment they may be doing something that seems like something we don't think we can do, we figure out how to rationalize in our mind where we are more significant than them so that we can then feel better about ourselves. No one's default mode is humility. Everyone's default mode sounds like this. Let me find the place where I'm better than them. Even if they're beating me here, I need to find the place where I'm beating them. If I can't, I'll simply justify their goodness in that area by some kind of, I don't know, nonsense that I create in my mind to make myself feel better. Why? It's because of our pride. It's because of our self-obsession. It's because of the vainglory and the conceit that resides within our own heart. I mean, even when it seems trivial, I mean, let's, let's take it out of the immediate context that Paul is talking about, right? He's talking about the life of God's people together as the church. Let's take it out of that context. I'll give you something that seems even more simple and more everyday than getting your head around that. Here's a very real example of what it looks like in our own world, in my own house. I am sitting down watching a game. I'm comfortable. I'm settled in. The game is going well. One of my children decides to come in and ask me if I would come outside and play with them. Now, in that moment, in my mind and in my heart, I have 10,000 reasons that are justifiable to me as to why they should not come in and interrupt me like this. Why they should be recognizing my needs and considering that more significant than theirs. They don't know what I had to deal with all day. They don't know the things that I had to take care of. They don't know how tired I am. They don't know how desperately I think I deserve a moment of peace and quiet. Daddy deserves some time. And I realize that every mom in here is rolling their eyes at this point. <laughs> My wife does as well. But in my everyday, I will tell you, it is the default mode of my heart to put my needs and my desires, to consider myself and those things as more significant than other people's, including my kids and the interests and the needs that they have in their heart and in their life. Because right then and right there, that is not the humility that God is calling us to. That is not the default mode of my heart. This is why I believe Paul does not simply wag his finger at the church and tell us, this is what you have to do. Shut up, shape up, get your act together. Start behaving this way. No, rather Paul directs our eyes, our attention back to Jesus. When you ask Paul what it means to live this type of humility, what it looks like in concrete terms, listen to how Paul would answer the question. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I know it's not the default mode of your heart. It's not the default mode of my heart. But have this mind. Have what matters to him, 
what seemed most important to him. When someone does something and you're not sure why, you ask them the question, what do you have in mind, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Now we get a glimpse into why Jesus has done what he has done. And Paul is pointing us back to him to better understand what this looks like when it's lived out. You ask him what humility looks like. Here you go. The one who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying that Jesus is the literal living embodiment of what he's been talking about in the first four verses. The mind that we are to have is the mind we see in him. And honestly, verses 6 through 11, these verses take us into the heart of all Christian doctrine and all gospel beauty. These verses were part of a, of a hymn of the early church. And I will say this because I think if you don't say this, you're not being honest and fair to the text. We could spend months in verses 6 through 11. The essential doctrines of the Christian faith, they are worthy of a lifetime of mining, and they are all here in these verses. These verses, like a few other, if you sit in them, will help you to better see and enjoy Jesus. We could spend months here, but this morning I'm just going to try to help us see how they fit into what Paul is encouraging in the church the argument and, and, and what he's trying to implore towards the church. What Paul is saying when he grabs this hymn and pulls it into this argument, this line of reasoning that he, he has with the church, what he's saying is that no one is more humble than Jesus. Jesus was the one who was in the form of God. Not material form, so don't start trying to think shape and function, but think possessing all the attributes of God. This is what theologians call the preeminence of Jesus. Again, a month we could spend just on this alone. He was fully God from all eternity. Jesus possesses all of the divine attributes and characteristics of God. And this one who is in the form of God, puts his humility on display in what you and I know is the incarnation. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He could have held tight to the rights that were his. If anyone had the, the right, so to speak, to hold tight to those things, it, it would have been Jesus. I mean, the default mode of our heart, of, of our human nature, is to clutch on to things to grab onto things, to, to snatch things for ourselves, to hoard things for ourselves, to keep things to ourselves, not to let go of things for the good of others. And the one who was in the form of God, who had all right, if anyone had a right, to not let go of something, in love, did not clutch onto those things. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the second person in God, the Son, became human. 
was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many pounds. The eternal being who knows everything and created the universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. The creator entered creation. The timeless, eternal entered time. The omnipresent everywhere enters into a place. The one seated on a throne chooses to be born in a barn. The one surrounded by angels in glory comes to be disrespected, mocked, and abused by sinners. The one living in heaven comes to live in poverty on the earth and to suffer as the man of sorrows. He became like us so that by grace we might become like him. See, the incarnation wasn't the end game. Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was the one who was in the form of God, yet for your sakes he became poor. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. And he became poor, Paul said, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, the hymn goes on in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus' humility didn't stop in Bethlehem. It went all the way to a cross in Jerusalem. In his humility, he allowed us to reject him. He allowed us to kill him. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the Bible tells us that it's in him that all things hold together. It is in him that every creative aspect and power that keeps things going is held together in Jesus. The very muscular impulses, the very electrical movement in the body that causes a muscle to act in a way the mind determines it to go, the very muscular impulses to drive a spike through his hand, he holds. The very muscular impulses that allow you to create spit in your mouth and then to be spewed upon someone else, he holds. Don't miss the humility in the crucifixion. He submits himself to death at the hands of his own creation. He chose it. He embraced it. He opted for that for you. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was the filth of our sin, the, the full horror of our condemnation, the wrath of God for our sin. It was that that bore down on Jesus' body on the cross instead of us. Friends, that is the supreme demonstration of humility. Of considering the interests of others above your own. It's what he had been teaching his disciples. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he looked them dead in the eye. And I believe it, and when we get a chance to see it in heaven, he looked them dead in the eye. And he said, you are my friends. Nothing's reserved. Nothing's held back. Nothing is out of bounds. 
Friends, this is the crucifixion. This is where our humility comes from. When we see Jesus anew and enjoy him, we feel overwhelmed by God's grace. One writer said, Christians are stunned into humility. Christians are stunned into lowliness. And they're stunned by the humility and grace of God they see in their Savior. Freely we have been served. Freely we are to serve. He treated us as worthy of his service when we weren't worthy of it. He took thought not only of his own interests but of ours. He counted us as more significant. So Paul says, have this mind amongst yourself. What was in your mind when you were doing this? Have this mind amongst yourself. Jesus gives us the pattern that we are called to conform to, but not only the pattern, he gives us the power necessary to be able to live it out. As we are in him by grace, he empowers us by his spirit. If there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul said, any participation in his spirit, which there is by the grace of God through faith in him, he not only gives us the pattern to conform to, but he gives us the very power of his spirit to be transformed that we might be able to live out the humility, the lowliness, joy that's found in him. If you keep reading chapter 2, Paul moves on from taking this hymn about Jesus and holding Jesus up for us to see as the pattern and the power, the mind to which this humility conforms, the, the power that it comes from. He then plays it out in a couple more examples. If you keep reading chapter 2, you'll see in verses 17 through 18, he uses his own life as an example of this. How this is being worked out in his life. In verses 19 through 22, he uses Timothy's life and he uses the exact same words. Listen to what he says about Timothy. Verse 19, it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. He uses Timothy as an example of the way joy in Jesus, confidence in the gospel changes the way you live your life. He uses the same words he's pointing us towards of counting others as more significant than ourselves. And even after that, he closes the chapter out in verses 25 through 30, talking about their pastor, their friend, Epaphroditus. His humility demonstrated in considering Paul's needs above even his own and taking a journey to go be able to serve Paul, a journey that found him ill on the edge of death. And Paul, after he feels better, sends him back to this church. Friends, this is the mind that Paul calls us to as we live together lives worthy of the gospel that God may demonstrate to a watching world, the supremacy, the worth of his son. But the song keeps going. Listen to how the song continues. Look at verse 9. Therefore, therefore, as a result, therefore connected to this humility that is seen by the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and came into human history for his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, having achieved for us salvation through his death on the cross, having conquered sin and death through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has now ascended back into the heavens. And today, if you and I were to see Jesus, we would see him exalted at the right hand of God the Father in glory. Friends, you need to understand the force of what Paul is saying. In their time, there was no greater name that could be named than the name Nero. He was the Roman emperor. Philippi was a Roman colony. And because it was a Roman colony, there was a practice that was part of everyday life that people would give allegiance to the name of Nero. They would pronounce him as the emperor of Rome as God. At every public event, at every sporting event, at every rally, at every everything they would go to, this was part of life. And Paul says there is a name that is above that name. And a day is coming when every knee will bow in submission. Every tongue will confess this name, the name of Jesus, that he and he alone is Lord. And what Paul is saying, and they would understand very clearly, is that on that day, Nero's knee will bow. Nero's tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. And the question that all who would be confronted with this reality would have to think about is, will I bend my knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord? The question that all of us have to wrestle with is, will I bend my knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord? Will I do it today for salvation? Or like Nero, will I wait? And on that day of his return, will I bow my knee and confess that he is Lord to my own condemnation? Will I do it today for joy? Or will I do it on that day of his return to my shame? Friends, pride, selfishness, Vain glory, everything being about me. You and I will be miserable if we live our lives for our glory and for our own name. Friends, as a church, we will be miserable if we live for the glory of the name of this church. The question that Paul puts before us, just implicitly in what he's writing, is will we exalt the name of Jesus? Will we make Jesus look good because Jesus is good? Will we live our lives together in a manner worthy of the gospel? The irony of the whole thing is simply this, Pride will ultimately leave us in humiliation. But humility will ultimately leave us in exaltation. The proof is in Jesus. The proof is in his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. 
Friends, how did the early church turn the world literally upside down? They obeyed a different king. Their lives were shaped by the priorities of a different kingdom. They lived with the overwhelming ambition together to live lives worthy of the gospel. Lives that reflected to a watching world that Jesus, come what may, whatever it may cost, was worth it. That involves standing together single-minded against external opposition with courage and serving one another and those around them with great humility. Friends, God willing, we, we have 20, 30 more years together to watch and see what God may be pleased to do through a people pursuing this for his glory and their joy. And I'll say this in, in complete honesty. We are probably never going to be known as spiritual giants. We are always going to look a little immature. We're always going to have various difficulties and, and struggles and hardships amongst us. But understand this, what God is calling us to, what Paul is encouraging the church here, isn't for us to be some kind of super spiritual elite. It's that you and I, with all that we have and all that God has given us and all that we are, might live a life of love and joy in him. That that joy that's found in seeing him and knowing him might lead us to live in such a way that we would engage this city and that we would engage one another with a great deal of humility and compassion, come what may, whatever it costs, because Jesus is worth it. And that for his glory in a way that only he can do, we might be able to look back in 20 years and see that he has established a legacy of joy in his son for our kids and our grandkids. Friends, this is what we're after. This is what I want for us. This is what I've got the next 20 years to be all in for. Will you join Will you go all in for the glory of Christ and joy that's found in knowing his son? Would we together be willing to do that? Let me pray for us this morning and then we're going to respond. Father, you do extraordinary things through what seems so ordinary to us. The ordinary everyday faithfulness of learning to see you and enjoying you and allow our joy in you to lead us out into courageous acts of humility and love, considering others more significant than ourselves. Lord, the ordinary in, in the eyes of the eternal is some of the most courageous things that we could ever put our hands to. Lord, we ask this morning for the name of your Son, for his glory, for our joy, that you would work in us a delight in you that gives way to a humility that apart from your grace simply could not be possible, a humility that is palpable, a humility that's tangible, a humility that is in concrete terms reflects this mind of your son. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to see those places of conceit and vainglory of, of rivalry that we even have amongst each other. 
We think we're owed something by one another. We think we're owed something by the organization. We're owed something. And we pursue what we think we're owed through whatever means be necessary. God, help us to see the places where pride is taking a foothold. And Lord, help us by faith in you, confidence in your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit to put those things to death. Lord, let us want the mind that we're to have amongst us. Let us want the mind of your son. Let us want the humility that is able to count those next to us as more significant. Lord, and give us the courage to be able to work those things out. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.